Okay, well let's get this party started. Hello, I'm Father Timothy Matkin and this is Matins. Uh, let's see, number 39. Where we're going to talk about uh, communion in the hand or communion on the tongue. This is part of our ongoing uh, series on how to be an Anglo-Catholic. Before we get to that, though, if you would like to correspond with me, you can, of course, comment down below on YouTube. Um, but if you'd like to email me, my email is frmatkin at priest.com. And you can, uh, I think there's been some who've uh, written me emails over the past uh, year, and I appreciate that very much, and uh, happy to correspond with you. And uh, if you comment down below, I should probably find that and be able to follow up if there's something that merits follow-up. Also, before we begin, we want to have a little prayer uh, from the prayer book in the back um, with all of the um, extra prayers. There's several that are fitting for before and after Holy Communion, before and after worship. And uh, number, let me see, uh, 105 is basically the collect for Corpus Christi. And uh, a fitting prayer on this occasion where we consider the topic of how to receive Holy Communion. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, who in a wonderful sacrament has left unto us a memorial of thy passion, grant us, we beseech thee, so to venerate the sacred mysteries of thy body and blood, that we may ever perceive within ourselves the fruit of thy redemption, who livest and reignest with the Father in the unity of the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. And uh, of note, too, one of the very few prayers in our liturgy that is addressed to uh, God the Son, um, I would say like 98% uh, are addressed to God the Father. Uh, and then, of course, the, the ending is, you know, through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, you know, very few are addressed to the Son and a very few addressed directly to the Holy Spirit. Well, we had talked previously about uh, receiving communion, basically getting ready, doing preparation. Um, but here we're going to talk about more the practicalities of receiving Holy Communion. And mainly we're talking about uh, receiving the consecrated host. But uh, before we get into that, just a few words about the chalice. Um, so when the chalice is administered... Um, Preferably, uh, of course, kneeling. Um, there are some situations where that's not really a practical thing. But in most Anglican churches that are you know, established, have their own building, that kind of thing, uh, you will have kneelers and you'll have kneeling communion. That makes it uh, a lot easier, especially for the chalice. Um, because um, to administer the chalice to someone who is in front of you standing um, is... You don't want to, of course, hand it to them, but you're you're almost doing everything but handing it to them, uh, because you can't see through metal, of course. And in fact, even when someone is kneeling, uh, sometimes you can't necessarily see into um, the bowl of the chalice, which is why it's important for the person receiving to uh, basically uh, touch the very base and direct, um, you know, how far the tip needs to go uh, for you to be able to take a sip and then when it should stop. Because remember, you can't see through metal. And I certainly don't want to pour it all over someone's face, nor do I want to just come by and tip it a little bit and it's, you know, way short and the person is, 
you know, want, not wanting to make a scene or something and say, excuse me, I need a little further tipping. And, and how do you do that when you're, when it's at your mouth anyway? So the proper way is just to just very gently hold the very tip because basically the person administering the chalice, their hand will act as like a hinge. And so they put the hinge in front of you and you move it uh, as far as needed to just take a sip and then that's it. Of course, ladies will want to blot lipstick. Um, that's one of the, <laughs> the things that the uh, ladies in the Ultra Guild would complain about uh, the most is having to clean up the lipstick uh, off of the purificators, which is a kind of an annoying, troublesome thing to do. And also you want to just, just take a, a very small sip. Um, basically, you can communicate, you know, 100 people on a very small amount of the precious blood as long as people are just taking a, a tiny little sip, uh, almost just, an, just enough to wet the tongue. And then, of course, you have that, that one guy, usually the teenager, who takes a big swig and throws off the whole thing. Uh, but that's another issue. Well, here we want to talk about uh, receiving communion um, and whether that's done in the hand or on the tongue. So if, where do we begin in the early church? Well, First of all, no one really knows, of course, in the Last Supper, uh, how Christ distributed um, the consecrated uh, bread there. Of course, remember that the apostles, unlike most of us, held the fullness of the priesthood themselves. So touching the sacrament, of course, is in their purview. That's not an issue that would come up. Also, we, don't, um, we shouldn't forget that it's a custom of Near Eastern hospitality, which was practiced in Jesus' time and which is, in fact, still the case, um, that one would feed his guests with his own hand, uh, placing a morsel in the mouth of the guest. And as we have this, basically in St. John's Gospel, in chapter 13, uh, Jesus said, uh, when he's asked about who is going to betray him, he said, it is he to whom I give the morsel when I have dipped it. Uh, so think about it for a moment. Did Jesus place the wet morsel into Judas's hand, that would seem rather odd and rather messy. So perhaps it was in the hand on the Last Supper, perhaps it was directly in the mouth, who knows? And um, well, we'll just have to th consider it. If we look in church history, the first time we have uh, an answer, um, well, no, we, we don't have an answer, in the Didache, which comes up in the New Testament era, about the 90s, it doesn't mention a mode of reception, only that they did receive every Lord's Day. However, there are interesting hints, perhaps, if we look at some of the history of the Old Testament. There are three major prophets from the Old Testament who were all fed the Word of God from their mouths directly. Well, thank you. This just in, <laughs> gorilla escaped from the local zoo. <laughs> No problem. If we look at the Old Testament, there are three major prophets who are all directly fed the Word of God into their mouths at the beginning of their ministry. So in, in Isaiah chapter 6, in Jeremiah chapter 1, and in Ezekiel chapter 2, um, each of the prophets is basically commissioned, begins their ministry by receiving into their mouth directly the Word of God, in this case on a scroll. But what do we have at the Lord's Supper? 
receiving the word of God incarnate into their mouth. So perhaps there's a parallel there. Also, Jews um, understood intuitively that they should not approach something that was holy. So the story of Uzziah being struck dead after touching the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel 6-7, of course, comes to mind. Only the Levites, who were consecrated by God, could actually touch the Ark of the Covenant. So, knowing this, and with keeping in mind that the early church was entirely Jewish at first, would anyone even think about touching something that had been consecrated and declared holy? Um, They wouldn't touch the Ark of the Covenant. That would be something that they would know from their training. So why would they touch something so holy like this? Well, what do we find next? Uh, Pope Sixtus I, about the year 115, uh, gives us the, the first, perhaps, clue. He says, the sacred vessels, that is the instruments, are not to be handled by others than those consecrated to the Lord. That's interesting. interestingly uh, why in the old days the uh, members of the altar guild would wear gloves. Um, it was not simply to um, keep things clean and you know, avoid fingerprints and stuff like that, although that certainly is a benefit, but rather it was because someone who was not ordained was not supposed to be touching uh, the patent and the chalice and things like that. Um, what do we have as far as uh, evidence about communion in the hand? Well, we first get it with St. Basil, Basil the Great, uh, an Eastern father. Um, and then he says that Holy Communion in the hand was something that was tolerated during times of church persecution. Of course, when he talks about being tolerated, it makes it sound like that's it, it's an exception to the rule a rule that's already established. In this case, the established rule is communion directly into the mouth. But in times of persecution, in times of practical difficulty, communion in the hand is understandably allowed. So when would it be allowed? Well, in times of persecution where there's a limited access to priests. So here, for a time, there was a talk about... um, Holy Communion being basically taken home and distributed by the Father or what have you um, in the absence of a priest. The other case would be for hermits and ascetics in the wilderness who don't have any access to clergy on any regular basis, so they would do a similar type of thing. He says that communion in the hand under any circumstance is a grave immoderation. So it's, it's a big exception, not a minor exception, but a big one. Thus the laity were allowed to touch and to hold the Holy Eucharist with their hands in exceptional cases. But of course, according to St. Basil, this was not something that was the norm. So we have one quote or one passage from him about this. Of course, it's very controversial. Um, And it comes from his mystagogical catechesis. So he has, I think, 23 altogether. Um, most of them uh, basically preparing catechumens for baptism. So leading up during Lent to Easter, instructing them in the faith, and then there are um, some that follow up after that, and there are five at the end. 
And the, the five follow-up lectures are debated as to whether they are authentic in the sense of that do they go back to St. Basil or do they come from somewhere else and they're just attributed to Basil? Uh, so there are manuscripts that don't attribute these lectures to St. Basil. So it might be that this comes from somewhere or someone else, but it's not quite clear. But generally speaking, these are attributed to Basil. That doesn't, if they came from somewhere else, that doesn't necessarily mean they're right or wrong. It would, it would indicate whether this is something that is consistent with what Basil has said elsewhere or not. So what does he say? In lecture, uh, well, basically in the last lecture, I think it's number 23, uh, which is the fifth of the five post-Easter lectures that may or may not be uh, actually St. Basil, he says, In approaching the Holy Communion, come not with your wrists extended or with your fingers spread. So I think he's saying there, you know, don't come, you know, to, to reach and grab. But rather, make your left hand a throne for the right. So like, like this. Um, make your left hand a throne for the right as for that which is to receive a king. And having hallowed your palm, receive the body of Christ, saying, Amen. So you make basically a flat opening with your right hand, supported by the left, to receive the bread of life in the palm of your hand. Now what about after that? Because what he says after that is very strange. What he says about this is, makes perfect sense, is not so strange. But what he says after that is very odd. And uh, it, it, it feeds into the idea that maybe this is not St. Basil. But then also maybe it is. And also maybe he's speaking more metaphorically, perhaps. So there's this hard shift, maybe, from literal to metaphor. Not quite sure. So what does he say? So then, after having carefully hallowed your eyes by the touch of the holy body, partake of it. What does that mean? That means touch it to your face. Touch it to your eyes first, and then put it in your mouth. Then, after having carefully hallowed your eyes by the touch of the holy body, partake of it giving heed lest you lose any portion thereof. For whatever you lose is evidently a loss to you, as it were, from one of your own members. In other words, don't let any crumbs fall in this process. You know, consider it to be as serious as if you're, you're going to lose a finger or an arm or whatever. Uh, will you not then much more carefully keep watch? that not a crumb fall from you as of what is more precious than gold and precious stones? Then, after you have partaken of the body of Christ, draw near also to the cup of his blood, not stretching forth your hands, but bending and saying with an air of worship and reverence, Amen. Hallow yourself by partaking also of the blood of Christ. And while the moisture is still upon your lips, touch it with your hands and hallow your eyes and brow, and the other organs of sense. Then wait for the prayer, and give thanks to God, 
who has accounted you worthy of so great mysteries. So again, very odd, uh, and this is certainly not something that we practice today. So communion in the hand today is very common, but smearing it on your eyes and ears and nose and stuff, uh, needless to say, is not, nor should it be. Um, So it seems to me that he's making a hard shift from the literal to the metaphorical. Um, Because basically that's the only sense that I can make of this. Uh, Otherwise, it just doesn't seem to make any sense. Because he talks about, you know, be sure to not let any crumb fall. You know, as as important as if you were going to lose a finger, you know, by working with a with a saw or something like that. But then he's talking about touch it to your eyes, touch it to your ears, touch it to your nose. Um, so it's it it definitely is a puzzle. Um, but two things we would learn if this is genuine and if we are to take it as a model um, is, of course, receiving it flat on the palm. Um, and so often you see someone not holding their palm out flat, so they would hold it more angled. Well, guess what? It slides right off. And if they have long sleeves, it slides up the sleeve. And then you have to go get it out of the sleeve. So big problem, big mess, flat palm. And also open palm. Because if you have your, your hand sort of semi-closed... That means the priest has to drop it from higher above, which means that, you know, it may not quite land quite right or bounce out. Who knows? So open palm, perfectly flat. And then what? Do you pick it up? No, you're not supposed to do it like that. What you do is you lick it off of your palm. You you put it to your mouth from your open palm. And then... You need to treat your palm like the pattern. Are there any crumbs? You need to look and see if there are any crumbs. If there are crumbs, you need to lick them off your palm. That is how you receive Holy Communion in the hand in a proper way. You have to put it directly into your mouth. You have to examine your palm to see if there are any crumbs. If there are any crumbs, you lick them off. You look again make sure you got it, and only then can you proceed. So, um, we do know there are a couple of other people that mention communion in the hand, St. Athanasius, and and these are just passing references. None of them get into kind of an instruction like St. Basil. They just kind of make a passing reference. Uh, St. Cyprian, St. John Chrysostom, Theodore of Mopsuestia, uh, all attest in the two and three hundreds, to the practice of communion in the hand. So it seems to be something that is perhaps commonplace, but not universal, because St. Basil mentions that the rule, at least by his time, has become communion in the mouth, but there are exceptions. Um, Athanasius refers to the washing of the hands before receiving, that of course it's important to wash your hands, and of course it doesn't make any sense to mention the importance of washing your hands if nothing is going to touch your hands. Uh, so that seems to be a reference there to communion in the hand. St. Cyprian, St. John Chrysostom, and Theodore Mopsuestia mention similar things, such as receiving in the right, and then adoring and kissing him. Well, the next thing we have is the Council of Saragossa in 380. 
which excommunicated anyone who dared continue receiving communion by hand. And this was later confirmed or reaffirmed by the the Synod of Toledo in 400. So this lends credence to that timeline with Basil in about 350, that um, communion in the hand is something that had happened early, but is being, it's kind of dying off, and it still persists perhaps in some places. Basel says by his time, that's something that um, has faded away, but it can still be allowed for exceptional circumstances where you don't have access to priests, to clergy who can handle the sacred species. So by the time we get to approaching the 400s, uh, basically um, we're not allowing any exceptions anymore. Christianity is legalized. There's no problem there. Uh, You're not under persecution anymore. Um, So it's something that's being stamped out. Pope St. Leo the Great, uh, 440 to 461, says, uh, This indeed is received by means of the mouth, which we believe by means of faith. So he, he kind of makes a, a comparison there. Uh, we receive Christ. Um, we receive him by mouth, and we receive him by faith in the Holy Sacrament. Pope St. Leo the Great uh, 590 to 604 is another witness. In his dialogues, he relates how Pope St. Agatho, back in the day, performed a miracle during the Mass after having placed the body of the Lord into someone's mouth, and then they were healed. The Synod of Rouen in uh, 650 said, quote, The Eucharist may never be placed in the hands of a layman or woman, but only in the mouth. The Sixth Council at Constantinople in 680, uh, I think that's Constantinople three, but I'm not quite sure, uh, forbade the faithful to take the sacred host into their hand, threatening transgressors with excommunication. So by this time, another 300 years on, uh, they are cracking down very hard on anyone who would dare uh, go against uh, what has become the universal practice at that time. And then the Synod of Cordoba in 839 condemned uh, a heretical sect known as the Cassiani, if I say that right, for their refusal to receive Holy Communion in the mouth. Ultimately, this local council set the standard that was accepted by the Universal Church for uh, 1,400 years. So it wasn't until 1969 among Roman Catholics and the pontificate of Pope Paul VI, that communion in the hand was first authorized for Holland, Belgium, Germany, and France, um, four countries that had disobediently allowed the practice. And we'll come back to that uh, a little bit later. Well, what does the prayer book say about uh, receiving communion in the hand? Well, basically nothing. Modern prayer books don't say anything about the how, just that it's done. Uh, so it'll, it'll have a rubric saying uh, the communion is distributed, you know, clergy first and laity second or something like that. Um, what do we find in, you know, practical manuals? Um, not a whole lot. I've been looking through some to find something, uh, but haven't really found much of anything. Uh, the practice of religion does mention communion in the hand. So when you get to the part where it has uh, the liturgy of the Sunday Eucharist, 
it has a little, it, it kind of gives step-by-step instructions. And they ring the bell, get up from your pew, and go forward to the altar rail, kneel down, that kind of thing. It says, <clears throat> if you are to communicate, genuflect in adoration of Christ and the sacrament as you leave your seat and before taking your place at the altar rail, saying silently, and there's a little devotional prayer, uh, which, let me read that. Lord Jesus, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof. Yet, O my Savior, come to me and be the way of everlasting life. And then the next direction is, as the priest comes to you, sign the cross and receive the blessed sacrament in the right hand, supported by the left, as the priest says the words of administration. That is, his words, uh, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, etc. And that's all it says about that. And then there's this uh, Bicker's Steph, uh, companion to the Holy Communion. Uh, it didn't have anything in there uh, practical uh, direction about it, but I thought I would uh, turn to this because it has some very nice uh, devotional instructions. This is basically filled with meditations for use at the Holy Communion, uh, the companion to the Holy Communion. It says, um, at the partaking of the bread, uh, say this meditation, I desire to remember Jesus Christ dying on the cross for me, I believe that he gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. Let me now receive, out of his fullness, all that I need. I trust in him alone for eternal life. I take Christ, my only Savior and Lord. I give myself to his service. I look forward to his coming again. I desire to rem- oh, and then uh, at the chalice, I desire to remember that his blood was shed for me. I believe that blood cleansed me from all my sin. I mourn for many sins that pierced him. I humbly lay claim to the new covenant blessings. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. I freely and heartily forgive all my enemies. I desire ardently to love all the people of Christ. All praise be to God for his unspeakable gift. A wonderful resource. I think uh, I found an online version of that. I'll put a link down below, which I also had at the Uh, episode about how to prepare for Holy Communion. Well, we do find some instructions in the early prayer books. So what do those have to say? Well, the the, the first thing that we have is an English communion rite that shows up in uh, 1548. uh, And it doesn't have anything that relates to our topic here. The first thing we have is the 1549 prayer book. So in the In the reign of Edward VI, there were two prayer books that came out, 1549-1552. The first one in 49 says, and and this is a rubric that is kind of, there's a pile of extra rubrics and directions at the end of the service, and so this is where we find it. Although it be read in ancient writers, and some of this language is very quaint, by the way, Although it be read in ancient writers that the people many years past received at the priest's hands the sacrament of the body of Christ in their own hands, and no commandment of Christ to the contrary, yet, forasmuch as they many times conveyed the same secretly away, and kept it with them, and diversely abused it to superstition and wickedness, lest any such thing hereafter should be attempted, and that a uniformity might be used throughout the whole realm. It is thought convenient, and that's a very (laughs) 
contemporary expression. You know, when they say it is convenient, basically what it's saying is do this. And so you'll find that throughout the old, old, oldest prayer books. It is thought convenient that the people commonly receive the sacrament of Christ's body in their mouths at the priest's hand. So the 1549 book instructs specifically that the people are to receive uh, the Eucharist uh, directly in the mouth from the priest. And it gives two rationales. One is we want to make sure that nobody takes it away, keeps a hold of it. You know, we put it in their hand, then, then what happens? And then the other one is, well, uh, you know, the Reformation is boiling over there in the European continent. People are doing all kinds of things. Um, let's all be on the same page, do it the same way. Um, so it's not just a, you know, every man for himself, make it up on your own kind of thing. Um, so the two rationales are um, for safety and security and also for uniformity. Well, then the next prayer book comes out of 1552. What does it have to say? It's a, first of all, it's a lot shorter, um, and this is what it has to say. And I think this one doesn't come at the end like the other one. I think this one is in the section where communion is being distributed. So it says, Then shall the minister first receive the communion in both kinds himself, and next deliver it to other ministers, if there be any present, that they may help, help the chief minister, and after to the people in their hands, kneeling. So here we have the direction to administer in the hands, and also the additional direction that the people are to be kneeling. So by this time, um, you know, things, of course, are quickly changing. Influence from the continent is spreading. There are perhaps some places where there's an objection to kneeling, or kneeling has fallen out of practice, and people are like, hey, look at what they're doing over in France and Germany now. We ought to try that. And so the, in the prayer book they said, no, no, let's stay kneeling, because that was something that was universal uh, throughout the British Isles. But here they say um, that it, it should be administered to people in their hands. Now, generally speaking, when we talk about the rubrics of the prayer book, um, things persist even after they are no longer proscribed. So probably what you have and what continues on for some time is some people will continue to receive in the mouth and others will have this new practice and receive in the hand. Um, and that, that's what we find when, it, when a practice is not prohibited, it basically continues on even though it's no longer mentioned. And so gradually it probably dies out over time and then it's revived later on um, in the 1800s in the 1900s with the Catholic revival and the interest in these sort of things. So basically, from the prayer books and from the large view of Christian history, we have two traditions, one on the tongue, the other on the hand. It sounds like, from our brief historical inquiry, that communion in the hand was an early practice. It may or may not have been the original practice. We just can't know. But certainly, uh, after the Christianity is legalized in the empire, um, the standard evolves into communion directly in the mouth. And um, so we're left with these two traditions in two prayer books. Which one is better? Well, I'll tell you right away. My preference is always in the mouth, directly on the tongue, not in the hand.
Now, we recognize that both are uh, legitimate, authorized, and also both need to be done the right way, and there are problems with both when they're done the wrong way. And so we mentioned earlier some of the things about communion in the hand to make sure it's done the right way. So we talked about palm very flat, and the other thing about the left hand supporting the right. And um, in, in a practical sense, that's mainly just for stability. Um, if your hands are both together, they're less likely to move around. Of course, you want a stationary hand. You want the palm open and flat, the fingers extended, not cupped like that. You want it not angled, so it's going to slide off. You want it flat. You want to receive communion directly from your palm to your mouth. And then you want to look and make sure that there are no crumbs, because there will be crumbs. There will be crumbs. And you have to look and make sure and it's like St. Basil said, be so careful and diligent and concerned about crumbs as if you were working with an with a electric saw and you wanted to make sure that you didn't cut your fingers off, that you didn't lose any of your digits and your members. Be that concerned about losing crumbs from the Eucharist. Uh, and he also mentions, you know, be as concerned as losing, you know, precious gold and jewels. Um, it's that important. And in fact, um, you can find videos out there um, about this where someone will, you know, have black gloves and a black um, background and they'll, they'll take some communion wafers and uh, just handle them, touch them, and then look and you can see little crumbs. Um, it, it just happens. Uh, the the, the modern-day um, industrial suppliers like Kavanaugh do a pretty good job, a lot, frankly, a lot better job than a lot of the convents did back in the day of sealing the edges very fine to avoid crumbs. So there's certainly not as much of a problem with crumbs as there used to be, but there still is. And uh, we use a communion pattern, basically a hand pattern. Um, <laughs> we uh, sometimes uh, refer to it as the pancake flipper. Uh, because it looks like, you know, a turner or a spatula, as people call it incorrectly. Um, and there are crumbs on that. And so with, we use that to go underneath the chin or underneath the hands. And afterward, we clean it off very diligently at the altar and make sure everything is wiped away into the chalice uh, and the ab ablutions. Uh, also, I remember in um, when I was a seminarian in uh, Grace Church in Sheboygan, um, and the, the altar there had very powerful beam lights that, that were directed to the altar. It was wonderful how bright it was up there. And, uh, and of course, you know, in the, in, the, in the winter, it gets very dry. Um, once it gets into the teens and the 20s, it just squeezes all the moisture out of the air. I remember that first winter in Wisconsin, uh, when it got to that point, and I remember waking up, and I'm like, <gasps> water! <laughs> I felt like I was just dried up like a sponge in the desert. Um, it's, it's really a strange sensation. And of course, then, the bread gets very kind of, I guess you'd say brittle. So it, it almost like snaps, um, like a piece of plastic that's broken. Um, but of course, being bread, um, there will be crumbs, and I remember uh, one time, with you know, the combination of the 
the very, um, you know, midwinter, very dry snap of the host as it was broken over the chalice and the very high beam lights, I remember seeing a little cloud, little dust cloud, a sacramental dust cloud that hung there for a second. And then it started to sort of fall down. Um, of course, you almost never see that, um, but I saw it for a moment. And it was a vivid reminder, and it'll always stay with me, that you have to keep in mind crumbs. So I think the best way to handle crumbs is always to receive directly on the tongue. Um, so a couple of other reasons why receiving on the tongue, why you should prefer that. Well, generally speaking, I think it's more reverent or lends itself to a more reverent approach, like St. Basil talking about, you know, be as concerned about crumbs as you are about losing jewels, about losing your own digits on your hand. Second, it requires a little bit of humility to stick out your tongue and be fed like a baby. Um, I mean, this is not how we normally eat. It's something that also kind of makes it unique and thus uniquely dignified and uniquely special to be spoon-fed, as it were. In fact, in the Eastern Rites, they do literally feed you with a spoon. Um, you don't touch the spoon with your mouth. They just kind of, you open up and they drop it in with the spoon. Uh, number three, it, it decreases, of course, the uh, possibility of profaning the sacrament by uh, dropping it on the floor or having it um, as the rubric mentions from the first prayer book, somebody taking it away or doing something with it. So if you have a, an occasion where you have a lot of outsiders, visitors, guests, um, weddings, funerals, that sort of thing, um, you'll have people that come forward to receive communion who shouldn't be receiving communion, who you know don't know what they're doing or something like that. And Every now and then you'll you'll come across it, and and clergy have to keep a special eye out in these circumstances because people will be like, "What is this? What am I doing? What am I supposed to do with this?" And um, I'll have to sometimes come back and say, "You need to eat that." And if if they're like, "Oh, well, no, thank you, I'm I'm not interested," there've been a couple of times where I'm like, "Okay, well, thank you, I will take it back." And those are situations that really happen. So, of course, if communion is directly on the tongue, someone is much, much more unlikely to take it out of their mouth and put it away. Number four, it makes contamination less likely by touching hands and spreading germs. Number five, there's, there's of course, a deep connection to an ancient tradition that goes back, you know, at least over a thousand years, probably almost two thousand years, um, it may, in fact, be the original practice. Um, and then, of course, um, much less likely to have crumbs. Now, we talked about instructions about how to receive communion in the proper way if you're receiving in the hand. What about if you're receiving on the tongue? Because as we mentioned before, it can be just as problematic if you're doing things wrong. Uh, so first is open your mouth wide. Um, they say make your mouth into like a landing pad. You know, the, we talk about with the little kids who are preparing for their first communion, you know, visualize, the, you know, the, 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 the priest is coming in with a helicopter, and that helicopter is going to land on the landing pad, and it needs a lot of space to land on that landing pad. So stick out that tongue, put your head way back, open your mouth way up, 
and make a big landing pad for the, for the uh, sacrament. So what, what we don't want is what so many people do, is they don't put their head back, so they open their mouth just a tiny bit, like trying to put a quarter into a vending machine, and you have to like look and see you know, if you're going to hit the right spot, and then, of course, make sure that it goes up in there. But don't do that. Put your head back, open up your mouth, stick out your tongue. And don't be afraid to stick out your tongue. You're doing it right. And this is the one time where you get to stick out your tongue at a priest. The next one is important, which is be still. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to hit a moving target, and it's easy to hit a still target. Um, some people suggest closing your eyes to make that easier. Um, for some people, closing your eyes makes you move around more. So I think it perhaps depends upon the person. I think the idea of closing your eyes is some people want to kind of meet you there. Um, don't, don't meet him there. Let him come to you. You stay where you are. You stay still. And the priest will come to you and put it on your tongue. Um, don't, like, uh, you know, go to meet him. Don't go to bite. I've had people, like, not... Not bite, but like, you know, sort of like close in as I'm putting it on their tongue. Um, and then what very often happens is I touch their tongue, or I touch their lips, or I, I knock their teeth with the sacrament when someone is kind of closing in for a, a bite almost. Don't do that. Stay still, lean your head back, open your mouth wide, stick out your tongue, and wait. And then all of a sudden, it'll be right there on your tongue, and then you close your mouth. Uh, so don't bite the hand that feeds you. Um, that basically, every single time that I've touched someone's tongue was because they were moving around or coming in for a bite, as it were. And then speaking of biting, the last point is don't chew uh, the Holy Eucharist. Um, now, if you're a, a priest and you're consuming the big host up at the altar, yeah, you got to do some chewing, but kind of chew it around rather than... What, what, basically, what we're talking about here is we don't want a situation where you, you mash it into your molars, because uh, that'll be stuck there forever. Not forever, but you know, for a long time. Um, and so we want to treat it in a reverent way. So basically, for a, for a small people's sized communion host, wafer, you just kind of let it soften on your tongue. And especially when you receive the chalice, it'll basically uh, dissolve, not necessarily completely, but enough where you basically, you swallow it. And then that's it. And it, you don't have to worry about it getting stuck in your teeth or anything like that. So that are the basics about the hows and the practicalities of receiving communion in those two separate ways, I always heartily recommend receiving on the tongue um, as the preferred method. But with the caveat, whichever way you do it, do it right. Don't do it wrong, because you want to avoid problems. And I'm going to close with an article that was posted on the New Liturgical Movement back in 2014 um, that kind of lays out uh, from the Roman Catholic uh, story the, the, what it says, the truth about communion in the hand while standing. 
so it says a kind of the introduction to this. A close friend of mine and my pastor, Father Richard Heilman, brings us our guest post today on the questionable origins of the, the modern day practice of communion in the hand. This was Father's homily today, which he adapted into a post for the new liturgical movement. He compiled most of this from various articles and sources. Father Heilman is a priest of the Diocese of Madison, Wisconsin. And this is uh, his article, or which was originally his homily. In my efforts to restore a sense of the sacred in the liturgy, I've often been accused of being pre-Vatican II. I usually correct them by saying, I'm exactly Vatican II. The Second Vatican Council called for few changes in the liturgy, understanding that there had been a great many changes to the Roman liturgy over the centuries, to be sure, but they had been gradual and organic and typically imperceptible. However, in all of church history, there was never anything like what happened in the years following this council in respect to the liturgy. This weekend, we had our first masses with the new communion rail. After one of these, and by the way, communion rails in Roman Catholic circles are extremely rare. And it's always kind of puzzling and odd and sometimes even shocking to Anglicans um, because we are used to always receiving Holy Communion kneeling, unless you got a situation where you got like a church plant meeting in a school gymnasium or something like that. Um, but basically, if you're in a church, you got a communion rail and you're receiving communion kneeling. That's almost, it's really hard to find, uh, especially a Novus Ordo parish that has an active communion rail. If they have one, it's never used. It's ignored. So they had put one in, uh, probably put one in, or started using the one they had from the old days. After one of these masses, I was talking with one of the old guard parishioners, a great guy, and he loved the rails. He told me that years ago, I love that expression, they had a parish council meeting and Father X wanted to remove the side altars along with many other alterations in this beautiful church. The old guard parishioner had said, it was a hard-fought battle that night, but we wore him down, <laughs> and he did only minor alterations. I said, my, how times have changed. That priest got criticized for trying to remove sacredness. Now I'm getting criticized for trying to bring it back. Since we were celebrating our new communion rails, and the gospel saw Peter, James, and John fall prostrate before the presence of God, I deemed it a perfect time to shed some light on one of those post-Vatican II innovations, communion in the hand while standing. We began with a little history lesson. An indult born out of disobedience. The practice of receiving Holy Communion in the hand first began to spread in Catholic circles during the 1960s, primarily in Holland. Shortly after Vatican II, due to the escalating abuses in certain non-English-speaking countries, Holland, Belgium, France, and Germany. Pope Paul VI took a survey of the world's bishops to ascertain their opinions on the subject. On May 28, 1969, the Congregation for Divine Worship issued Memoriale Domini, which included, quote, from the responses received, it is thus clear that by far the greater number of bishops feel that the present discipline, that is, Holy Communion on the tongue, should not be changed at all. Indeed, if that, were, if, that if it were changed, 
this would be offensive to the sensibility and spiritual appreciation of these bishops and of most of the faithful. End quote. After he considered the observation in the Council of the Bishops, the Supreme Pontiff judged that the long-received manner of receiving Holy Communion to the faithful should not be changed. The Apostolic See then strongly urged bishops, priests, and laity to be zealous to observe the law out of concern for the common good of the Church. Despite the vote, in 1969, Pope Paul VI decided to strike a compromise with the disobedient bishops on the continent. Given the gravity of the manner, the Pope would not authorize communion in the hand. He was, however, open to bestowing an indult, that is, an exception to the law, under certain conditions. First, an indult could not be given to a country in which communion in the hand was not already an established practice. So, that is, he didn't want it to spread, he didn't want to start it in new places. Second, the bishops in countries where it was established must approve of the practice by a secret vote and with a two-thirds majority. So, you want to get away from pressuring uh, in having that secret vote. Beyond this, the Holy See set down seven regulations concerning communion in the hand. Failure to maintain these regulations could result in the loss of the indult. The first three regulations concerned respecting the laity who continue the traditional practice of receiving kneeling and on the tongue. Number two, maintaining the laity's proper respect for the Eucharist. And number three, strengthening the laity's faith in the real presence. Bernardin's Campaign. How did communion in the hand come to America? In 1975 and again in 1976, Archbishop Joseph Bernardin, the president of the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, attempted in vain to garner two-thirds of the bishops to vote in favor of receiving communion in the hand. The following year, which coincided with the end of Bernadine's term as president, brought one final attempt. Bernadine appointed Archbishop Quinn, who became his immediate successor as NCCB president, to be the chief lobbyist for communion in the hand. During the proceedings, a brave bishop requested a survey of the bishops be taken. This survey would ask each bishop whether or not communion in the hand was widely practiced in his diocese, for without the practice's current wide use, the first condition of the indult would not be satisfied. Of course, everyone knew that communion in the hand was not a previously established practice in the United States. Though his request was seconded and supported in writing by five of the bishops, Bernardin had the motion dismissed as out of order. The bishops then voted only to once more fall short of the two-thirds majority. This, however, did not end the matter. Bernardin decided to unlawfully begin gathering absentee votes from any bishop that he could find, including retired bishops who no longer administered dioceses. Consequently, the number was adjusted to meet the two-thirds majority. So they <laughs> stuff in the ballot box. They kept counting the votes until they got the right answer. Pope Paul VI regulations. Have they been met? So what about Pope Paul VI regulations that could result in the loss of an indult? Number one, respecting the laity who continue the traditional practice of receiving kneeling and on the tongue. 
Reports are now widespread of priests refusing communion to those who wish to receive kneeling and on the tongue. That's technically illegal, by the way. You see that happen. Even reports of priests berating people for this. A friend of mine said he was traveling and attended Mass where he proceeded to kneel and indicate that he wished to receive on the tongue. The minister of Holy Communion refused and ended up walking away from him. He remained. Finally, the priest came over and said, Get up, son. We don't do it that way here. My friend said, So, are you refusing me Holy Communion? The priest said, Yes, I am. He got up and walked out and reported him to the chancery. It is a severe infraction against canon law for any priest to do this. Number two, maintaining the laity's proper respect of the Eucharist. While I can relate to many of the following, here is a testimony from a deacon. I watched a mother receive communion, her toddler in tow, and then take it back to the pew and share it with him like a cookie. At least four times a year, or five times a year, I have to stop someone who just takes the host and wanders away with it and asks them to consume it on the spot. Once or twice a month, I encounter the droppers. Many are well-intentioned folks who somewhere, somehow, drop the host, or it slides out of their hand, and Jesus tumbles to the floor. I found the Eucharist in a hymnal, under a pew, in the bathroom, and in the parking lot. The Vatican does not allow communion in the hand. That is, in in Rome, in the Vatican city-state. One reason is because tourists were taking the Holy Eucharist home as a souvenir of their trip to Rome. Not too long ago, I was alerted to someone who did not consume the host. After Mass, I confronted the young man, and he pulled it out of his shirt pocket. It seems he wasn't Catholic and didn't believe, and so he didn't know what to do. But I'm very worried these days with the rise, of course, of satanic cults who use the Eucharist in their rites. In fact, someone who shared this story of his youth, he admitted these satanic cults are just everywhere now. When I was in, this is the the guy's story about that. When I was in junior high, I started hanging out and getting high with some of my older brother's friends. They would play around with Ouija boards and tarot cards. They would get dropped off at youth group at church, go in the front door and out the back door, to the woods for sex, drugs, and booze. They would brand each other with pentagram rings and even sacrifice small animals. I never participated in it because I was the little brother. But they would talk about the Black Mass all the time. There was an older guy, our dealer, in his late 20s, who claimed to be a wizard and showed us his pics. I didn't know what that was at the time. Um, Because the priest at the Catholic Church he went to wouldn't pay much attention. Well, they have a pics. They must, be legit. they must be legit. He even said he could find hosts after most masses on the floor or sometimes between hymnal pages like bookmarks. I remember that when he showed, opened, opened it up to us to show us, he told us it was Jesus and that we were going to have a party with him. Well, I chickened out, went back to our youth group. A couple of nights later, our friend, after the Jesus party with the wizard, decapitated his sleeping aunt with a, with a samurai sword because he heard voices telling him to. She was a regular mass-attending woman, the only one left in the family. Now he's locked up in a mental institution for life. When I started learning about Catholicism, I always remembered that awful time and couldn't, can't, shake the feeling that my friend opened himself up to demonic possession by participating in the Black Mass that night.
There were no, there were no drugs in his system when they arrested him that night. Number three, strengthening the laity's faith in the real presence. In 1950, 87% believed in the real presence, according to a survey. Today, this is 2014, that number has plummeted to a mere 34%. The abusive and hurried manner in which the practice of communion in the hand was imposed after Vatican II led to a widespread lack of reverence for the Eucharist and caused great pain for many in the Church. It disoriented many people, who with real justification, especially in light of the recent overwhelming loss of faith in the Eucharist and the Real Presence, feared that the very heart of the Catholic belief had been compromised. So we see that Pope Paul VI's regulations for maintaining the temporary indult are not even close to being realized. Scholars and saints speak. Why kneel? Pope Benedict XVI has noted that kneeling is, quote, an expression of Christian culture which transforms the existing culture through a new and deeper knowledge and experience of God. He reminds us that the word proskenin alone occurs 59 times in the New Testament, 24 of which are in the Apocalypse, that is Revelation, the book of the heavenly liturgy, which is presented to the church as the standard for her own liturgy. In his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, Pope Benedict speaks of of a story that comes from the saying of the Desert Fathers, according to which the devil was compelled by God to show himself to a certain Abba Apollo. He looked black and ugly with frighteningly thin limbs, but most strikingly, he had no knees. The inability to kneel was seen as the very essence of the diabolical. Why receive on the tongue? Despite the widespread practice of communion in the hand, the universal discipline of receiving Holy Communion on the tongue has not changed. A bishop, for example, may forbid the practice of communion in the hand, but not forbid the practice of communion on the tongue. The Church strongly encourages the latter, but not the former, at least on paper. With respect to communion in the hand, the Church speaks only in a cautionary tone because of the many abuses that often accompany this practice. St. Thomas Aquinas reminds us, with respect to communion in the hand, that reverence demands that only one who has been consecrated should touch the Blessed Sacrament. He writes, The dispensing of Christ's body belongs to the priest for three reasons. First, because he consecrates in the person of Christ. Secondly, because the priest is the appointed intermediary between God and the people. Hence, as it belongs to him to offer the people's gifts to God, so it belongs to him to deliver the consecrated gifts to the people. Third, because out of reverence toward this sacrament, nothing touches it but what is consecrated. Hence, the corporal and the chalice are consecrated, and likewise the priest's hands for touching this sacrament. Hence, it is not lawful for anyone else to touch it except from necessity, for instance, if it were fall to, to fall to the ground, or else in some case of urgency. In his apostolic letter, Dominique Sine, Pope John Paul II also states, quote, How eloquent, therefore, even if not of ancient custom, is the right of anointing the hands in our Latin ordination, as though precisely for these hands a special grace and power of the Holy Spirit is necessary to touch the sacred species 
and and to distribute them with their own hands is a privilege of the ordained, one which indicates an active participation in the ministry of the Eucharist. Mother Teresa reportedly said, Whenever I go in the whole wherever I go in the whole world, the thing that makes me saddest is watching people receive communion in the hand. Even the great Pope John Paul II reportedly said, There is an apostolic letter on the on the existence of a special valid permission for this practice of communion in the hand, but I tell you that I am not in favor of this practice, nor do I recommend it. End quote. Become less, then you can become more. And this wraps up his article, and we'll wrap up our presentation today. Communion on the tongue helps to fo- foster a proper sense of reverence and piety. To step up to a communion rail and kneel and receive on the tongue is an act of utter and unabashed humility. In that posture, to receive the body of Christ, you become less so that you can then become more. It requires a submission of will and clear knowledge of what you're doing, why you're doing it, and what is about to happen to you. Frankly, we should only be humbled but intimidated enough to ask ourselves if we are really spiritually ready to partake of the sacrament. Kneeling means you can't just go up and receive without knowing how it's properly done. It demands not only a sense of focus and purpose, but also something else, something that has eluded our worship for two generations. It demands a sense of the sacred, Just like Peter and James and John before our transfigured Lord, it challenges us to kneel before wonder. It insists that we not only fully understand what is happening, but that we fully appreciate the breathtaking generosity behind it. It asks us to be mindful of what Eucharist really means, which is thanksgiving. Well said. I'm Father Timothy Matkin. Thank you for joining us. Tune in next week, and uh, we'll see you then. If you're uh, local, come join us for worship. If you're in Dallas, and um, you can, of course, look us up and learn all about us at our website, stfrancisdallas.org. Um, so please like and share this video, and we will see you there. God bless. <laughs>